Welcome to Bach Lab, the podcast by Emanuel Music, the living laboratory for the music of J.S. Bach. I'm Claudia Dorian, and in this episode, I'm joined by acclaimed contemporary composer and Emanuel Music founding member, John Harbison. We began our conversation with his formative musical influences and his early involvement with Emanuel, leading our conversation to center upon his work composing service music for Emanuel Church. Take a look at our website or Facebook page to follow along and see the music for these examples. You may also hear some of these works if you attend the Emmanuel Church services. Later on in the episode, we talk through some of his compositional influences from Stravinsky to jazz, dive deep into his philosophical approaches on vocal music, the role of the composer, and some of his specific approaches to composition. Enjoy this insightful and varied conversation with one of the great minds of the Emmanuel music community. Well, thank you for being here. I'm really excited for this conversation. Delighted to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah. So, I mean, you've been a part of Emmanuel Music from long before I was born. Um, how did it come into your life? Um, or honestly, like, how did you bring it to life? You know, um, what were you doing in Boston and how did this become such an interest for you? Well, I actually grew up with a great fascination for Bach cantatas. As just as a high school kid, I had a bunch of recordings and I put together a cantata when I was in high school with some high school kids. And then nice. graduate school, I organized a couple of concerts of uh, cantatas. So when I got back, when I got to Boston, I had been an undergraduate here. I'd done cantatas with Bach Society Orchestra's conductor that when I was an undergraduate. So it was an ongoing thread for me the whole time. And I left Boston at one point uh, to, I, I just didn't have a job uh, coming out of a fellowship, mm-hmm. postgraduate fellowship. And I got a one year uh, Reed College, Portland, Oregon, mm-hmm. uh, teaching job. Yeah. And I went out there. But before I went, I had been hired a couple times at Brandeis to conduct new music. Mm-hmm. And during my time in Reed College, the Cantata Singers, yeah. which was a, already a very active group in town, had a, con- composed, a conductor search. And I didn't know much about it, but unbeknownst to me, one of the committee members was a quartet player from the Colas Quartet. And uh, he had been playing viola in one of the Brandeis performances. He recommended me. So when I came back, I found that I'd been, I, I was a finalist for the job mm-hmm. of... Uh, conductor of cantata singers. Um, And it was in that position that I met Craig Smith, who came to hear our concerts. Yeah. And he was, he turned out to be living across the street from me. And he was very, at that point, as as he always was, a kind of Schubert and Bach guy. He he was um, incredibly advanced, extraordinary musician. But he decided, having heard the cantata singers that he could do something like that with his new job at Emmanuel Music, where he, which he took over stories often been told, but he, previous director kind of had a collapse in, in the middle of rehearsal. Mm. Craig tried conducting and they said, why don't you stay? And he stayed for 40 years. Yeah. <laughs> and so when he started at Emmanuel, um, I, there was an overlap there. I think I was still at the cantata singers. Um, but we traded ideas and thoughts about cantata a lot. And um, I remained 
really connected to everything that went on all the way through because I, I was kind of daily in touch with uh, with Craig. Craig was an unusual combination of someone very uh, productive and very alert to his musical tasks, but someone who did a lot of hanging out. Yeah. Uh, kept in touch with his friends very vigorously. So there was the constant sort of strange exchange of ideas. And he became quite often uh, impatient with the service music. He would always call up wherever I was and say, you've got to write some more service music. <laughs> um, is that what you were doing mostly at the time you were conducting, but like filling in? Yeah, and I was coming to church quite often to, to, to hear cantatas yeah. in his... In his uh, uh, performances here and then um, the more he got involved with being the music director of the church the more this business of him really having some sort of issues with the with the service music and I kept uh, I kept responding to his requests for different versions and of course there was just the issue that people like to have change and they like to try singing something new and so I found um, a bunch of approaches when I went back in my files um, I did one set which was were very kind of learned. I wanted to try some sort of difficult compositional things. Yeah. Um, and then one set which was very, very florid, which was not very successful, which is kind of Gregorian chant. Like I'll leave you examples of each one. Of them. Yes, absolutely. And um, then uh, my attempt to sort of turn it into a, a mass in two voices for the congregation. Uh, all the mass movements would be sung in sort of two-part choir. Mm. That, that didn't survive long, but it was kind of interesting. And we were constantly dealing with two interesting issues. One, could what can the congregation really side-read? Mm -hmm. uh, and sort of what is the proper duration and sort of tone for these very short uh, moments? And, and Craig was extremely interested in that and he also liked the idea of changing over once in a while mm. so i found a lot of different iterations of this and then i also worked occasionally with the choir um and uh, i think my most interesting experience with the choir i had almost forgotten it but i came across it again they sang a benedictus by a, a an Anglican composer in England, John Rutter, who's very po popular in the Episcopalian Church mm -hmm. in in England, and uh, nobody liked the choir. Didn't like the piece. It was by Emmanuel Choir standards. It was pretty sentimental. Yeah. <laughs> so I came across the thing I'd really forgotten doing, but I wrote um, a harmonization where I kept the melody. But I just redid the all the other parts. Yeah, and it was a fascinating experiment. Um, most of the congregation was very happy just that the melody was still there. Yeah, and did not register that it was another harmony. The choir yeah. felt that it was it. Uh, th there were some very strong remarks were made by the choir. Said, if we do that again, I'm I'm not going to be there that week. That kind of thing. Oh, okay. But so the choir felt like it was a big difference. But it, it apparently it was a spare experiment in the sense that the the singers, most of the con congregational singers, are going to be focusing on what they do, on what they're singing. Mm -hmm. 
And so it was for a couple of weeks quite a successful substitute um, and a kind of a, let's say, an experiment in how people perceive musical texture um, because the, the two harmonizations have almost nothing in common. I mean, they, they're just, just from other worlds. But um, I'd love to hear. Uh, and and I, I don't have the melody anymore, but I do know what, it, what it's called, the Benedictus by John Rutter. It's probably somewhere in the manual library. Yeah. Someday I'll, put, I'll be curious to, to, to access it and see, what, how, it's, see how it sounds. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, in the course of many of these composings of, of the service music, um, Craig began to just mix and match and just put things together that were not part of a, a, a group. Different pieces of yours. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, and he also was quite interested in um, the whole idea of what uh, what the congregation could handle by way of sight mm. And that led to the longest of the pieces, which actually has been coming up a lot lately, yeah. which is the, the uh, um, credo, mm -hmm. which is a lot of singing. Uh, and a lot of reading by the congregation. Um, so it's do an, you yeah. remember any of these kind of ideas or requests that Craig was giving you to kind of shape these pieces, or any of, like you said, you know, you're going to attempt a certain technique? No, it was always expressed in, in, from a different angle. Mm -hmm. He would take the ones that were offered, say, in the hymnal, or in, I guess there were some Episcopalian sort of... Uh, uh, it's maybe choir master's manuals. Or this, hits, yeah, yeah, right. right. <laughs> and he would only just say what he didn't like. Okay. That was about all I was going by. Yeah. Um, it wasn't, it, it didn't come from a source of, uh, this one seems like in the right track. And it was always, uh, it always had, it, he had a sort of dramatic emergency quality when he was reacting in those ways, you know. Um, that, that really we've we've to got be. to attack this problem immediately. Yeah, uh, and that was kind of fun because you know he, that's the way he was. Um, so I think almost all of these were done uh, on sort of direct reactivities from from Craig to having a kind of a little bit of light hand on the tiller for a while, and he showed up and something was happening, and they didn't didn't really like it. Mm -hmm. Or he heard from the choir. Because they're there, you know. Yeah. They're 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 on their first witnesses. Totally. They've sung something. They don't want to do that again. So that's that's been that goes back now many many years. I can't remember when I first. I didn't date most of the things that are in my um, in my file, but it, it goes back going 30, 40 years. Really, right, almost to the first weeks that Craig was here. Well, and that kind of ties to the other, I guess you know related project is the weekly cantatas, right? Yeah. Um, do those serve as like inspiration or even, you know, knowing that that's what this music is, you know, introducing almost. Mm -hmm. um, what's the story there? Yeah, I would say becoming more involved in the cantatas uh, had a big, really a big effect on the kind of music I wanted to write. Mm -hmm. And, um, and the, the ones that I knew very early are still very primary. I'd still go, go back to those pieces. The, the, the cantatas had started so early. I, I remember my record 
collecting went on mostly with my jazz playing friend Tom Art, and we would go to the record store, which in those days you could just put things on and, and listen to them. Mm -hmm. But we would listen to a lot of jazz and a lot of cantatas, because that was really where our interests were. Yeah. Um, you so, mentioned a couple that were like really foundational. Yeah. What you think back on, maybe? I made a, I did a strange thing, which is that when I took the cantata singer's job, I was coming back, I was on the way back from the West Coast, mm -hmm. and I stopped for the summer in Madison, Wisconsin, and I decided I'd better have a look at these cantatas, which were going to be the bedrock, and I didn't own an edition, so every day I went into the library for really all summer, and I just read through all the cantatas. Yeah. It took a lot of days. And, but it was very helpful, and I, I remember took some notes. And so by the time I, I inherited that job, coming back from, um, from, from uh, Portland, I had a really good idea of a lot of pieces I wanted to explore. Yeah. Um, so, you know, at this time, obviously immersed in cantatas, um, you know, later becoming integral to the practice here with, with making this service music, there's also a lot of artistic stuff you're doing outside of early music, right? You know, if you want to talk through some important moments in that and maybe like how the experience of doing this work and having this foundation like has woven its way through potentially. Yeah, that's really true. Um, one of my institutional connections for 20 years has been a uh, rather oddball and interesting um, yearly festival called Songfest. Mm -hmm which has bounced around in terms of location, was in L.A. Uh, for a long string, and um, it's been really a couple of other locations now, lately in Nashville. Mm -hmm. um, but that's encouraged me to each year uh, rewrite more things for voice and piano. Yeah. So that's been a constant sort of ongoing thing, and I realize now quite a lot of, I have a lot of sets of songs, and I've gotten to know a lot of poetry, and mm. it's, that it's very important to me. Obviously, the words of the cantatas have always been great interest to me, but working with, or not working, working with the poetry of living poets has been a very different and extremely important uh, way of sort of broadening my my thought about music. I also have had close connections with some of the new music groups in town, particularly Collage, when mm -hmm. David Hoos has been conductor, written some large pieces for them. Yeah. Um, and uh, continuing to really uh, work with text. Mm -hmm. um, I did one really pretty bizarre thing, which is to take a set of motets by Ajo, uh, Montale, an Italian poet, and set the entire 18 uh, poems mm -hmm. for both with piano and, and then later made an ensemble version. Um, and these big vocal projects have sort of gone along with my interest in the cantatas, I think, because it's a it's another way of thinking about uh, text and word, text and text and music, and in, in sort of large forms. Um, yeah, like cantata as like form. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, the the variety of the of the cantatas is one of the great fascinations. They're, they they are supposed to be a a real alternate way of experiencing the, uh, Service, the text, yeah. text of the day. Uh, and they've 
some of their most startling uh, uh, features come from the very, very strong concentration on that, trying, trying to make the, the episode vivid mm-hmm. to the listener. Yeah. Um, because, of course, you, you, they were written for a, an audience which was only less than 50% literate. Hmm. You know, they came to church, but they depended on what they heard um, from the sermon and from the reading and from the music to absorb what what the topics were. Um, so, uh, in a way, that's that's something which I think a vocal composer of Bach's era took as a very powerful responsibility. Um, yeah, in a way, that's that's his job. I yeah, guess. he's trying to. Yeah. He was a minister. He was he was an adjunct to the ministry, and and felt that that was one of the things he wanted to make happen. And that it is really true that the the atmosphere of those cantatas is is uh, just the sound of the cantatas is much more rooted than we ever will fully explore. I think in terms of the, the words that they come from. Um, uh, yeah, I mean that just sparks a bunch of questions for me. Like to return to your composing. Do you feel? Do you have a similar relationship to words? Yeah, I do. I I can't. I can't go on too long just writing pure instrumental music because I don't. I feel I need. I need what the words are offering, mm-hmm. just to just to find a sound that is not familiar to me. You know, um, which is what I'm always trying to do. I mean, mm-hmm. um, so that. And, and lately, and, and establishing connections with with word sources. I mean, I've written a lot of music now on poems by Louise Glick, who is a, actually it's a friend of mine. That's been helpful to me because there's something about her, the directness of her expression, and the and the sort of precision of the emotion and the bluntness of the writing that's been valuable to me. I think. Uh, yeah, I can see that. Like, music is often super ambiguous, right? Mm-hmm. In yeah. nature. So that's yeah, I think the words, uh, and of course the words are helpful to listeners. Mm-hmm. And and we write in, in, say if we're writing in a string quartet, we, we are, we can be quite esoteric about how we, how we approach form and, and how we move through a piece. Mm-hmm. But the words are much, much more of a, of a, a um, an anchor and a, a required impulse, really. You've got to convince the listener that they both belong together. Um, and um, so that's why there was a series of pieces that, that I did for Emmanuel here. Um, one, the last one of which was the Supper of Emmaus, which is a subject I've been wanting to work on. Um, and the words... Um, is this the same poet? This is just a straight out of the Bible. Oh, okay. I got the idea of just straight Bible pieces uh, by really from some pieces by Stravinsky. Mm-hmm. He, uh, Abraham and Isaac would be pieces of Stravinsky's that really struck me quite startling. That you that that you could get a tremendous amount of drama and 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 kind of spectacular immediacy from just. Just taking a Bible text and and going wherever it went, mm-hmm. and that was probably for me a big 
It happens in Bach in a different way. But uh, Stravinsky, very, on three occasions, that's what he just did, just straight, straight up. No sort of recitative explanatory yeah. things, so just the way the Bible tells it. It brings up to me this idea of like, like a constrained creativity, right? Like when oh, yeah. you have like a, a parameter, some some foothold to latch onto, then that allows like the music to, Absolutely. to the, go all the, sorts of. The, the more the more you can be led, and reduce the uh, the, the possibilities. I think the better for many of us to, you know, to, to have some imperatives because otherwise... It allows for more sometimes. Yeah, there's too, there's too many possibilities. You know, mm. you, you need to be anchored and checked by the specific intents. And I think that's one of the things that these stories, you know, that's one of the things that obviously I think for Bach, that's as a cantata composer, he's, people say, well, that's his job as cantor. Well, also... He's in great need of reasons to make this or that mm. texture or sound or this this kind of an orchestral tutti, you know. He that's that's always a complete straightforward result of what, what he wants of the scene. That's something that people talk about Bakken. It's it's all justified and Yeah, he wants yeah. yeah, and he wants the scene to be the, the what you hear. You know, an orchestra tutti is so in Bach cantatas is so specific to the cantata. Um, one of the things that bothers me about a lot of recent orchestral music is that uh, composers are taught a lot about orchestration, which is kind of a skill. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a scientific thing, and and there's you can describe lots of things that which in terms of the modern orchestra are effective if you remember to do this and that. The end result of really knowing that is that your score is going to sound like a really good piece of Hollywood writing. It's going to sound like a John Williams score. Yeah. Which is an achievement of, of a sort, mm -hmm. but an awful lot of new orchestra pieces sound like they are marvelously technically schooled about how to make an orchestra sound great. But what we really want to hear from the orchestra is what this piece is, is presenting to us about the sound of an orchestra, you know. And that's, to me, that's that's what's always present in every Stravinsky piece, orchestra or not. His his orchestra, usually because it, the sound of his studio lacks something or has too much of something. But it, Imperfect. It, yeah, it has, a, it has something that's somehow specific to, this, to that piece that's something he wants to hear. It's, it, it's a little odd usually but that to me is what is exciting to me about sitting down to write for instruments is that, that you find some way that that piece has a, has its color and that's what i feel is true of the bacchantatas in great part because they are so loyal to their task of the day yeah i'd love to hear an example of either instrumental or not in your writing where you set up to hit something specific, and and what actions did you take, and and what effect did you try to produce? Uh, yeah, I, I would say that in the supper at Emmaus, I'm thinking about um, just the core of the story, mm -hmm. which is it begins after the crucifixion with the discovery of the the opening the opening of the tomb, 
Um, and it, it ends up with one of the most fascinating scenes in the Bible where two people are wandering down the road and they have, uh, they have a meal with a mysterious stranger, which is an archetypal story independent of its appearance in the Bible. It's a fascinating story. Yeah. But, but that, that character and that scenario and that cast of characters seems to me to have to have a presence really from the first downbeat. And could you perhaps take me through a technique that you employed to create that effect? It's a, well, it, it's going to wind up as a, as, as a scene for a trio. Um, so I think that was that large scale three voice division was what I was thinking about. Yeah. But, but I think every piece with a text has, has something about the sound of the, the eventual sound of the piece, who the character is going to be what the poetry is going to be insisting on. That piece, of course, is going to wind up with, it's actually something that happens in, in the Bach and Tarzan subject where it's about abandonment. It's about the th third guest just leaves mm. and the people left behind feel abandoned. Yeah. That, it seems to me, also has to be kind of in the, in the fabric from the beginning. Yeah, so it's, it's like a, a literal voicing choice. Yeah, it is. Yeah. 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 There, you, can, you can make a healthy sounding large orchestra sound and you can make a, a lacking orchestra sound too. And Bach does, Intentionally, of yeah, course. Yes. Bach does all those things in various cantatas. But, but it's, it's really, um, I think it's something that today's composers need to, to, to ponder. Um, I kid every once in a while, some of my students at Tanglewood about the University of Michigan Tutti, you know, the perfect orchestral, perfectly scored orchestral big sound, uh -huh. which if you went to the University of Michigan, you can do brilliantly. Great. <laughs> <laughs> and it's always a very, very effective. But, but to me, it's, it's too known. And one of the things that I know, notice about just even in a Haydn symphony, all those pieces that he wrote, the the tutties are not are not alike. It's partly that he's quite able to to with very seemingly very mainstream material, he changes the weight and the color of it a lot, and yeah. the pieces don't sound like each other. But I think that's that's true true that particularly composers who come to the same medium a lot of times as he did with with an orchestra as Stravinsky did. They want to find a way to not be in the same piece that they, that they were in before. Yeah. And I think that comes from... They're just writing a lot. You know, you think about Haydn, you and, think and about and a million one, symphonies and, and being and restless And being to... restless enough about it. I mean, Bach cantatas are, to me, are, are, are amazing. You, you, you look, you go one to the next to the next, and there's always something about the color that's a little different that has to do with what he's trying to accomplish in that piece. Um, and of course, he's thinking ahead all the time, since he's usually, certainly in the last phase, he's writing a lot of them. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that interested me is to look at, I, I had not seen, there's a book that has a lot of the, uh, the sketch form scores. And um, in empty staves, uh, 
at the end of movements where he hasn't needed all of them, there, there's there. If you if you know what you're looking for, you suddenly see a tune or a rhythm, hmm. and the tunes are always two weeks ahead. They're he's he. He's, he's got a little he, idea. In the period when he's really working week to week. So he's he's reminding himself that he has some sort of an idea. And then if you look to the two weeks later, you'll see it's like maybe it's a soprano or something or, or just a rhythm. But that those empty spaces there are, are his reminder of, of the sequence of pieces that he's writing. He's what is your kind of process on that topic? Like... Are you able to be in one piece and thinking about another, or um, how linked are your pieces to the succession and and all of that? I've never I've never entered a uh, situation of uh, that kind of fast delivery. <laughs> I think the only counterpart is people now who work in television or film. Uh, my experience is much more thinking ahead to something I know is coming and knowing that I've got something I don't want to lose. Yeah. And being organized enough so I don't put it somewhere I can't find. Mm, yeah, like um, so yeah. sparks of inspiration yeah. when they come. Right. Learning that, don't don't presume you're going to remember it. Yeah. That's a hard lesson, by the way. Or, or if you put it somewhere, try to remember where you put it. I, I had a really a sure idea for the really the last symphony I'm going to write. I think sixth symphony. I had a good sort of little complex of things that wanted to be up against each other, and I lost it. Yeah. And um, it took about a month. Yeah. It turned out. It was, it was actually... Good. It didn't just have it, to be... It was stuffed. I had my piano open. It was actually stuffed into some... Into the... Uh, yeah. If, yeah. I, if I had happened to play those, it might have fallen out. But, but that, yeah, those kinds of things that I, you... You get ideas that you think are vivid, but they're, they're not... They're not as uh, hardy as, as you hope they will be sometimes. That's why we should... We need to write things down. What are some of these... What often will spark a piece for you? Is it, like you said, a combination of voicings or like an idea or melodies? What comes to you often? Yeah, it's, I think that uh, no preconception is probably the best. Mm -hmm. yeah. Then what do you start with? It, it could be any of those, so rhythm or just a sound, um, a chord. I was getting. I always have lots of hopes for chords, mm. uh, though. I also, I must say, it's it's tremendously useful to um, to have a text because the text, even if you make a useless sketch on a text, there's something about uh, something attached to is is just enough to 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 get something started. Um, I was glad to be asked by Craig at so many different adventures to, to, to try again on super service music because... Try again? Would he ever say, he, I don't like this one, let's, let's sure. do something... Oh yeah, yeah. and he also would say, um, his, the thing he was always impatient with was the, 
the sort of sentimental sounding stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and I, of course, that was that was a controversial position for him because some people obviously there were plenty of people who liked it. So he would sense that sometimes in your in your service music and. Yeah, well, he what what he wanted in the service music was a little bit more starch, mm. which is I think you know like the reason to ask someone in the mm-hmm. first place, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Could you take me through one of the ones you have here? Well, let's see. Yeah. I think we brought all the ones that didn't work, um, but oh, but they're, they didn't work for interesting reasons. Oh, cool. Um, this one. It was tried at the treble only. Each of the five measure phrases is the same three parts and just in all all possible positions. Mm, and then like displaced. Yeah, so this this voice well the each voice appears in all three positions in different different order. So my idea was the thing ought to be some congregationally with people trying to pick take parts mm. to him that was a an interesting property of the thing but he didn't think it was didn't think it worked in the service so he when he 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 i don't when he would actually do the the musical transcriptions for the for the service and he i think he did it part by part oh interesting so you're just singing the same yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, this one, I, I like the idea. This was a, a little two voice piece, and I said, "Can't the congregation sing two voices?" Eventually, he decided, that, "No, they're just going to sing the top voice." But I think I think it worked out pretty well. This was a flat reject because it was an attempt to sort of sing in a kind of Gregorian style and free melisma uh, didn't work. Mm. Um, I, I always thought, well, if it, that was interesting at least. This. The rudder. I don't know how to find the rudder tune. I guess you could just Google it nowadays. But this is my harmonization, which which made the the piece palatable. There was a real revolt in the choir. They said, "We will not show up and sing that one again." Against the original. Against the original. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So this was. They just felt that was that was an a funky that was, it was, success. It was, it was their dignity was at stake. So those are some yeah. interesting attempts and yeah. fun ones. I'm curious, just because I heard this one the other day and I thought it was really neat. Oh yeah, that one's been around for a while. It was. It had a, a couple of companions which were also of that kind of simple tune, but but uh, but somewhat uh, kind of weird, kind of French inflected harmony. Yeah, and this one has sort of survived for interesting reasons. I don't know. Um, in general, they mostly came in sets, and then they detached. Is that's what this felt like? Because I, this, I was, this one I was, was sitting in the service. It's the remainder of us. Of the of other day, and I was like, "Wow, I wonder." Because I, I was like, "This must be a set," and it felt mm-hmm. like you were slowly like going further and further from the classic yeah. chorale. But well, indeed, it was. Well, the whole point with those is try to keep the tune very straightforward, and then and then and then the organist takes care of the harmony. Yeah. But I remember a couple of times where where the um, it was actually another movement of that of that one the uh, sort of the 
Frenchies, Frenchie then. one. Even though I think the, the congregation's line was not too hard, it was the harmonies were really daunting, and they I think they kind of crumped out. I think it was one that Craig decided to table. Um, Most of it. Yeah, but he really had this great reactivity. I'd say the hymns. If there was a hymn that, that was coming up a lot that really annoyed him, mm-hmm. he he would the next week. You know, he'd be staging quite a filibuster. Yeah, I mean, it's just all of this is just so enlightening to me in realizing that this is such a special service, you know, and oh, yeah. especially with Craig, but still today, and always like keeping up this. It really is an idea of like an evolving service um, with the music like tied to the tradition in such a real way and also this like... This is really true that there is something as that's really been thought about and that there are, there are elements that are unique and there are people in the congregation who who have themselves a history and and the, or, the origin of some of these things is, is certainly quite... Yeah, I mean, do you think that there's another church in Boston that's performing hymns that are, you know, written contemporarily? Like, I think that's probably not not much. Really unique, yeah. Not much. Yeah. Yeah. It's very, you know, I I've went so many years as a composer without thinking about writing choral music, and it was only really being around Emmanuel that made me think. Well, <clears throat> here's the. Here's a group that really is like have instrumental level of absorption, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, now, my first few motets, which Craig recorded them, but my God, I, I would, have, would have been not surprised for him to just kick them into 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 oblivion. My my assumption was this is sort of like a string quartet of human beings. No. Yeah. It turned out that was not really right. What, in what ways does it differ? Well, I, I'd sung in choir, so I should have known this. But I never had much trouble finding the notes. But on the other hand, what singers do to find pitches is very different from what's, what you do on the violin. And they have a little bit, very good singers have a little bit in their, just in their system. Physicality. That, Physicality that tells them where an F is, you know, hmm. but nothing like an instrumentalist. So my assumption in those first motets, which was that they were just, you know, great violinists or flutists, but they happen to sing. Yeah. <clears throat> that doesn't really prove true for singing. Singing, finding the notes <clears throat> is a different process. Yeah. And I kind of caught that on, caught on to that. Um, so eventually I made a kind of a, you know, a kind of psychic adjustment to what it's like. And since then, I must say, I've, I think I've been trying to. It is, Luigi Dalla Piccola said, unaccompanied choir is the best medium available to compose it. Hmm. In what way? It has the most humanly affecting sound. Unaccompanied choir. Really? There really is something remarkable about it, what it is. Yeah. I don't think anything communicates the same way. And I think he was right about that. Yeah. We've talked a lot about medium, right? Mm-hmm. Um, whether it be the <clears throat> the congregation, the voice. Mm-hmm. Um, what about like the sound and the content? Like what for you 
are approaches and you know sounds that you try to make when you're writing for mm-hmm. um, the service or you know the congregation um, or even like cantata inspired works. Like, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think the the way that the ear is attracted to and wants to follow sound <clears throat> is very deeply bound with the phenomenon of what they hear as stable and unstable. Yeah. Right? That the the whole thing, the ways that composition was always first taught about dissonance and and, and, and consonants. Of course. Is a lot of, that's the syntax, and that's what draws you into wanting to follow musical speech. So that, and particularly because the resonance of choral singing is extremely intense in, in the way it's sounding in the air. Um, I think that's one of the reasons that we are very attracted to the play of consonants and dissonance in choral music. But it's also why choral music, which is constantly dissonant, which yes. doesn't have signaled consonants enough, is not only very hard to perform, but is very impenetrable for listeners. Mm. It's it's a medium which which you you can write a piano piece in which the entire language is about relative dissonance, which which are, none of which are really hierarchized. Yeah. But I think in vocal music, we are expecting the acoustics of the room to make a lot of solutions for us in order to be able to attune to the music. Yeah, I'm wondering about that because it's so true. Like you can sustain a string of dissonances on the piano and still kind of hold on to that home in a way that I think you yeah, can't. Yeah, it's exactly what, what, what I'm trying to in say. In the voice. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, well, and to <clears throat> what sounds to me is like you do push back upon that, right? Like you're... you're... <clears throat> yeah, you really have to just you you have to embrace it you have, if somebody is absolutely convinced that they can write a choral piece that that it has a sort of I'm on the piano attitude that we can make a language that has its own syntax and we will be satisfied i think the acoustics of voices in the air is simply going to is simply going to question that yeah, and I'm wondering about a connection to like our earlier conversation about the, you know, exquisite part writing for orchestra, right? Like, there well, is a quote-unquote choir sound. Well, and of course, choral music, everyone who writes choral music discovers that the execution depends on part writing. Mm-hmm. People need to be able to, to sing well in a choir. They have to be able to sing their line. <clears throat> And the tuning of the various lines has is to do with the the way that the ear helps to adjust, but the line writing is what is what anchors and takes the singer through the piece. Yeah. And you can make amazingly unlikely and radical, interesting vertical soarings if you've led all the parts there with immense security. Well, um, it, it reminds me too of 
you've spoken elsewhere about like being a jazz musician as well Mm -hmm. and I'm trying to learn how to be a jazz musician a little bit and part of it is for me voice leading to interesting things you know like you, you can't really play like a interesting note it's got to make sense and when it does it's perfect i wonder like is that like a connection you see there sure exactly yeah and uh, yeah the, the the jazz musician's choice of notes it has to do with listen jazz listening is so specific that it is the key to jazz is that the the pasacalia the, the harmonic grid a really keyed up jazz audience is hearing that because that's how they gauge the invention and the choice of the notes. Right. And then why they can hear that Oscar Peterson is really good and somebody else sounds like a plumber. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's similar yeah. to, you know, landing on a dissonant chord, but when it is in this context of this like larger harmonic journey, then, sure. then oh, yeah. you know, it's effective compositionally. And the jazz musician who's who's nudging the the note that doesn't work with the changes is is usually using that as a springboard to showing that he does know where the changes are. You know, maybe this is a bad metaphor, but it kind of reminds me back to the beginning of of harmonizing these church hymns oh, yeah. creatively, right? Like sure. when you have that foundation, like when a congregation has that foundation, like then there's the opportunity to build interesting harmonies around it. I guess. Sure, and one of the reasons we love those books, which maybe show us all box, maybe six different treatments of a chorale, mm. is that's what he's doing. I mean, his choices are limited somewhat by the, 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 the what the tune, what sounds really logical for the tune, right? Can't do, do anything, but within what you might do, he usually finds just about everything. Hmm. You know. Well, to bring it a little full circle, you know, beyond consonants and dissonance, what are you aiming for your audience to latch on to or take away, maybe? Yeah, I'm just hoping that they are that they are interested in some of the things, some proportion of the things what I'm interested in. You know, I like tunes. I like certain kinds of harmony. Um, I like to feel that the form is some, in some ways, uh, if not momentarily clear, adding something to your being located in the piece. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that's what composers are stuck with. They're, they're hoping that the people that listen to art have a certain alignment of interest. So I wonder then, like your ideal audience is one that's like engaging with your work intentionally and not listening as a wash or you know yeah they're likely to be interested in a lot of the stuff i'm interested in i just wonder like i think some composers maybe the intention isn't for the audience to get it do you know what i mean oh yeah that's hopeless huh interesting that's hopeless yeah Bach Lab is brought to you by Evangel Music in Boston. The music you heard in this episode is from Bach Cantata BWV 127, presented by Emanuel Music February 27, 2022, conducted by Michael Beatty and engineered by Seth Torres. I'm Claudia Dorian, host and producer of this podcast.